Good evening and hello to everyone in podcast world that we were just talking about. I'm Rabbi Nick Renner here at Kihilat Israel, and I'm so glad to be joining you all again for Tales of the Talmud. Um, before we get into, this is part two of Yohanan ben Zakkai. If you missed part one, it's totally fine. I'll recap what's going on. Um, but we're seeing we're in the midst of the struggle for Jerusalem in and around uh, the year 69 and 70. So, before we get into that, though, what is the Talmud? What is this text we're looking at? Um, I love to do this little recap every time as well, just so we have some idea of what it is we're looking at. Anyone want to toss something out there? What do you know about the Talmud? It's cool. The Talmud is cool. Thank you for that, Mickey. I, a man after my own heart, I think the Talmud is really cool. It's a recording uh, of the discussions of rabbis starting around one. 5200 CE even earlier yeah even earlier yeah. than that and being pretty much fixed around 6 700 CE mm-hmm. and there are two what's plural of Talmud Talmuds Talmudim there's two Talmudim <laughs> a uh, Babylonian and a Palestinian yep and you can guess where they come from Indeed you can. <laughs> the so, name is a hint. That's pretty good, Bert. Bert just gave us a lot <laughs> of great really, info I've heard on it. You say You've it heard my... Uh, <laughs> I'm glad it's sticking. So, the Talmud is the beginning of... Yeah, go ahead. Well, and, and it has sort of two major breakdowns. One is law and one is stories. Mm-hmm. And the major part of the Talmud is on the inside of the book and all the commentaries mm-hmm. around the outside, including descending positions, which are presumed. Okay, so in the actual book itself, that's right. We get people who post-date... Um, the redaction of the Talmud. So we get even around the outside, we get Rashi, for instance, a French rabbi from around the year 1100 or so who has all kinds of commentary. And we have Ein Mishpat Ner Mitzvah, which is a section that explains what the Jewish law is on something today because there are places where the contemporary Jewish law regarding something is different than what the Talmud says. Um, but you are right. It is the... Uh, it is stories and it is law it's legal material it's the beginnings of the rabbinic project as it were the beginnings of rabbinic judaism so starting in and around the year zero with the very very first rabbis um the first piece of talmud it's actually two separate texts is called the mishnah it gets redacted in 220 by yehuda hanasi the head of the rabbinic assembly and then the gemara is what comes afterward um the mishnah is largely in hebrew gemara is in aramaic um, in large part, although they go back and forth. And it's all about the rabbis trying to figure out how do we make sense of the Hebrew Bible, of the Torah, how do we make this a living, breathing system that um, comes alive in our time? Yeah, go ahead. Is it Jude. ongoing? Not at this point. It continued, it gets canonized in around 600 or so. We're not sure exactly when, but we do know that the last layer of it is a voice we call the Stam. It seems to be the anonymous... Uh, commentator who gives the last word on what the decision might be or what the consensus is around these things. Um, but it has continued in the sense there are responsa and rabbis and rabbinic. That's correct. Make discussion that they make decisions, but it's not written down. That's right. As part of it. So I think to answer your question, yeah. yes, the, the commentary and the reinterpretation. 
goes on. Talmud is a living thing, even while we recognize it as being having been canonized at a certain time. Right, but when people study Talmud today, very often they're doing what you just said, trying to figure out what does it mean and how do we interpret it for today. So when we say canonized, that's a Christian term. What do we mean canonized? So the canon being a set text that is defined. So people talk about the canonization of the Hebrew Bible, even Mm -hmm. um, as well as to when it was defined as in which books are in and which books are out because there were other biblical books and literature that didn't wind up in the Hebrew Bible. Um, Ben Sirach, for instance, or Judith um, are other biblical works around that time that didn't make it into the ultimate canon. And different people have different stuff in different books, not for nothing. Weirdly enough, we're the ones that celebrate Hanukkah, the Jewish people, but the Book of Maccabees is not in the Hebrew Bible. It is in the Catholic Bible, though, which I always think of as a strange and funny uh, coincidence. But um, So the other thing about Talmud, I'll say a couple of other things about the Talmud that we're looking at. Uh, it was oral. It began as a series of conversations, uh, and it got written down later on. And so the orality of it, the oral quality of it, shines through all the time, the way that they jump from topic to topic if they are reminded of something or some piece comes up. It's not sort of as formally standardized as you might expect with like a written treatise of some kind. So one of my favorite examples of this is this cycle of truly outlandish stories about a rabbi who goes on this sea voyage and encounters dragons and whales and traitors and all of these strange, it it reads kind of like the stories of Sinbad or something like that. And it begins in a whole series of laws where the rabbis are talking about laws of building boats. And in the middle of this conversation about laws around building boats, they say, oh, and here's a story of a guy who went on a boat one time. So you get that conversational quality of of it. Yeah, shining through very much. Um, One could make the argument that the Talmud is sort of the basis of Judaism, that what came before was very much an ancient Israelite worship that was centered around the temple, it was centered around the priesthood, it was centered around sacrifice as a way of connecting with God. And in the wake of the destruction of all of those things, um, the rabbis were the ones who stepped forward and began to pick up the pieces. And so I've even heard it argued that what came before isn't even really Judaism in the sense of it, um, but that Judaism is very much a function of that rabbinic project, of that innovation that we get with the Talmud. I'm not sure I would make that argument that Judaism starts with them, but it certainly has made a profound mark on Judaism as we have it today. Yeah, would you accept modern Judaism began with them? <laughs> yeah, you could say is there, that. Is there anything in the Talmud about sacrifices? So there are pieces in the Talmud about the sacrificial system because at times they're looking forward to when the temple would be rebuilt. So they're thinking about how the temple would work um, even in the midst of not having the temple. Um, It's been said before that there are parts of the Talmud that are sort of utopian, that might not even describe a society that the rabbis necessarily conceived of existing, but it might be describing at times the world that they hoped for, in a way. Um, The Talmud is also, um, it's elite, it's elitist. The rabbis were a bunch of men, elites in their society, who sat around and had this conversation in their Beit Midrash, and there's a tension there between them and between people who lived normal lives, were farmers or traders or merchants or the like. Um, There's some arrogance on the parts of the rabbis, 
um, and they are pretty much just men. There are a few occasions where we had women. We actually had a notable woman in, I believe it was our story last week, one of the um, noble women of Jerusalem who was named and talking about her story and her fall. Um, but it is a largely male work. Um, so we do struggle with some of the elite quality of it. It's also oftentimes very dense and very convoluted. You'll see their own logic. There, there's its own internal sort of rhythm and logic to their discourse. Um, they're also very fond of you know, using him and he as pronouns, so oftentimes following the dialogue can be challenge, <laughs> challenging. And there are times at which I intentionally leave it ambivalent because some of those or not ambivalent, uh, leave it uh, vague. You mean because, translation? Yes, I, there are times that I intentionally leave it unclear exactly who is talking because I consider that an invitation to different readings of it. Um, as my Rav from growing up, Steve Sager, always said, he's a guy with a PhD in Midrash and rabbinic stories, in addition to being a rabbi. He always encourages people to share what their movie version of this is. Read it and think about what it looks like in your mind's eye. Because oftentimes in sort of crafting your own image of it and your own movie version of it, it's a way to look at what assumptions you took to it or what assumptions other people have about it. And the texts are sometimes vague enough that uh, there are lots of different readings. Um, having all of these different readings and different possibilities, I want to suggest, is not uh, a weakness of the text, but rather it's an invitation for us to take part in that discourse. This is what Judith was talking about. Is it still alive? Well, when we discuss it and bring it into our lives and our time, uh, it very much stays alive with us. And then is it read in the same cyclical way that the the Torah is? Good question. It doesn't have a, uh, a lectionary cycle like the Parsha of the week kind of, Parsha HaShavua <laughs> cycle, but there is a cycle of reading the entire thing one page at a time. Now, this gets back to the Talmud. Yes. Seven the, years. It takes about seven years to do that. Mm -hmm. The Talmud is the longest written work of antiquity. Um, it's 63 volumes. It's four times longer than the next longest work, which is some code of Roman law or some such, and a big piece of that is because it, pres it preserves even the dissenting opinions. It keeps all of the arguments in there, even when it chooses to go in a different direction with it. When was the last canonized part of the Talmud? Probably 600-something, although it's not totally known. Um, another interesting thing about the difference between the um, Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, sometimes called the Palestinian Talmud, and the Bavli, which is the Babylonian, um, the Bavli is more often used in Jewish study today, but the Bavli has also, we see the thumbprint of later generations editing it for clarity. So the Bavli is generally more accessible, but the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem one, um, tends to be closer to the original language. So Jewish scholars will oftentimes look to the Bavli for an answer on something, but uh, academics and people who have their PhDs in Talmud and are studying um, the ancient rabbis will oftentimes look to the Yerushalmi to try and get uh, a closer to the more original view. So it's somewhat elitist also. It's um, a little bit denser, more, dif more, it's more inaccessible, I would say. What, what's the relation between the two of them? Is like just interpretation or a whole... Good question. Great question. So the interesting thing is that there is this exilic community that came out of the destruction of the first temple, the Babylonian exile. They were then, uh, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, and King Cyrus let the Jews go back to build the second temple. Well, a lot of Jews stayed 
in Babylonia, in what is today Iraq, Iran, some of those places, and establish these big academies there. And so clearly there is a discourse between these two centers. The rabbis were clearly going back and forth, and they knew all the same rabbis between the different schools. Um, so, but in many ways, some of the most noteworthy academies were in Babylonia. Um, I think about this kind of discourse as being very relevant to our modern era, where we as American Jews have this ongoing conversation with Israel and Israeli Jews about what Judaism is and is going to be. And I believe that in many ways, just like in the Talmud, um, the Jewish people are enriched by that discourse and by that back and forth and having that consciousness of afar and that local consciousness in Israel itself. Um, but yeah, they're connected um, in the whole conversation. Going Other questions? To, yeah. To Judith's question, uh, you know, we say, well, it was canonized in 600, whatever, but, uh, and maybe some people can help. What, you know, we look at these texts, what was going on in the rest of the world at this time? Throughout Mexico, and I think most of Latin America, there was still human sacrifice. Right. Uh, this predates Islam. Right, which I think is a 700 yeah. something yeah. or other, and uh, great perspective, Bert. R- right, and and in, in in Europe, this is pre Middle Ages, right? This is dark. Is this one of the so dark? We're dark getting ages? into the not BCE, no. AD. That's correct. AD. CE, well, yeah. CE, we call it CE. CE, six hundred. Right. So we're we're really taught. We read these texts, and in many ways they seem contemporary, or they seem a hundred, or two hundred, or three hundred years old. But if you consider what else was being written in the world at that time, this uh, is before the schism of the church in the year one thousand, the split. Mm-hmm. This is before. This is sort of at the edge of the of the dark ages where. It's interesting that the Jews really struggled with Rome as an imperial power, and yet the collapse of Rome and its authority within Europe sort of heralded um, that medieval time, the Dark Ages, all of that conflict that was going on there. And when were the Crusades? Somewhere was thousand. About a thousand? Yeah. So this was, the end of this was 400 years before the Crusades, and I'm struggling to remember what was going on in India and China at this time, but I think this was the heyday of Indian and Chinese philosophy. Mm-hmm. And Chinese, Chinese philosophy was at its height between that six to 800. That was wow. the height of Taoism and Confucianism right. and all of that. Mm-hmm. But that's because China also had a history going back to right. 400 sure. CE, same as the Jews. They were, were the two oldest civilizations. But these texts actually yeah. predate a lot of that. <coughs> so for their time, compared with what was going on elsewhere, it really is quite amazing. One last piece is Christianity is, of course, very young in and around the first couple of centuries CE. Um, I've heard it suggested by scholars before that Christianity wasn't its own coherent religion until the Council of Nicaea in 300... Can somebody help me with this date? Three-something? 360-something. 360-something, okay. Um, So we're still seeing sort of the infancy of Christianity and it trying to figure out what it was going to be during these centuries as well. Um, so even the interplay between the early rabbis and the Christians is an interesting factor as well. But wasn't the Mishnah before that even? The Mishnah was even before that. The Mishnah again was redacted in 220. And all those so, it's been that's way right. before that. That's right. So even the consciousness of the emergence of Christianity and its impact on the early rabbis here is also a really fascinating thing. Sometimes they go back and forth and in an academic sort of debate, and other times it's more poisonous, um, but it varies. So, 
lest we talk about the Talmud in the abstract the whole, for this whole time, I want to move us into our story for this week. So, um, here you go. Here's this. This is the second piece on Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the third in a row that we've been learning all about the destruction of the Second Temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. Last time, the last couple of pieces we got, I'm going to recap, Kamtsa and Bar Kamtsa. Um, the rabbis talk about how there were these two characters, Kamtsa being some kind of a little insect or locust, so cockroach and son of a cockroach. Um, and there was a confusion about which one of them was supposed to come to this party. There was great offense had, and this nasty, uh, the Bar Kamtsa, goes and uh, reports, makes up this whole story to the Romans and gets the Jews in deep, deep trouble with the Romans, um, with their emperor. And we see historically the beginnings of the Jewish revolt coinciding in and around the way that they describe it. So it's hard to say that Kamsa and Bar Kamsa were the actual triggering mechanism of the violence, but clearly the rabbis have this story about hurt feelings that they use to talk about it. The last time, the part two of this whole cycle of the temple was looking at the different factions in the city of Jerusalem. We were there during the siege of Jerusalem where the city had been encircled and there was no way out. And it was in the hands of these zealots, these biryoni, these thugs. Um, my teacher, Steve Sager, uh, we were talking, I was trying to get a handle on who these biryoni were, and he said that it wouldn't be a bad analogy thinking of them sort of like Italian black shirts, um, that they were, the, they were ideologically very extreme, and they were sort of these street fighters and enforcers um, of the regime. And then there were additional sort of groups, uh, extremist groups, Kanaim, who were the zealots, and the Sikari, who seemed to have been some kind of pre-ninja group of assassins actually operating in this time. So there were lots of these militants, and then there were the rabbis trying to figure out a way to turn down the, uh, the volume, to turn down the heat on some of that violence going on at the time um, with all of these groups. So we saw in that story the Abba Sikara, the head of the Sikari, negotiating with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai to smuggle him out of the city without the zealots seeing, because the zealots were going to kill anybody who was leaving the city, and in fact they destroyed their own food stores to force a military confrontation, to force an end to the siege. Um, and so Abba Sikara, who seemed to have been sympathetic to the rabbinic perspective and the plight of the people of Jerusalem, helped smuggle Yochanan ben Zakkai and his disciples out, um, pretending that they were dead. And so this is where we are picking up, is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai has just escaped to the city of Jerusalem. We're going to learn this piece in Chevruta, which is the traditional mode of Talmud study. Chevruta, it's an Aramaic construct for the word chaver, for friend. Um, this is how everybody has learned Talmud for pretty much its whole history, is you learn it in pairs. You learn it with a study partner. Um, so I'm going to encourage this groom to break into twos or threes. Um, to learn, we're going to take, I'm going to let you all take a first pass at this story. You can move through it quickly. Don't worry about understanding every twist and turn of it because it is strange and it is bizarre and you will see weird stuff happen. But um, I want to encourage you to take a first pass in Chavruta and then we'll come back together as a big group to discuss it in fine detail and to go over all of the different meanings of it. So, ready, set, go. 
So, welcome back from our Chevrutot. Now we're going to do this as our full group discussion. Can I get a brave and valiant volunteer? Well, before we start the reading, I just want to reiterate that, again, this is... Um, this was not written to be accessible or to even be easy or to, for there to be an easy way in. So if it's challenging, you're in the right place. Why wasn't it? I mean, why wasn't there a better editor? That's a good question. I think it goes back to the sort of elitism of the rabbinic project, that they saw themselves, some of them did. Some of them were more uh, democratic or interested in the people and their experience. There's a story that we're actually going to do about opening up the Beit Midrash to more people, um, the democratizing of the rabbinic project. But there's a tension there with the elitism of it, which I think is a piece of it. Go ahead. I also just wanted to comment that until very recently in the time frame of civilization, the concept that the average person or anyone other than the social and political elite should be able to read or have any intellectual training, it's very new. It's only been a few hundred years that, that it's been considered anything but horrifically inappropriate to teach people who are not the political, social, and economic elite basic knowledge. Um, these people would have been illiterate. Yeah, the, the people would have been illiterate. They, you know, the, the concept of esoteric knowledge, yes. you know, uh, the, even from the, the, the Greeks, who were probably the most widely literate people, uh, still things like basic mathematics were considered esoteric and were only learned by the philosophers in the colleges, mm -hmm. in the collegia. It was, Those books weren't printed till the mid-1400s. Yeah. Right. And these were people who spent the whole day just sitting around talking about this. It's not... Well, to an extent, because I mean, we do know... They were academies, weren't they? They were, but we do know that a lot of them also had trades. Yeah. So there's well, a mix the there. Then, yeah, so, well, there's a mix. Some of them mm -hmm. seem to have had trades, and then others of them, we saw this famously with Shimon Bar Yochai and the cave, where he's hiding in a cave for all these years and comes out and sees people laboring at work in the field, and he's so angry that they're not studying Torah, that they're actually working for a living, that everything he looks at catches on fire. He incinerates all of these things. So the kind of extreme piety of that, um, there's, a, there's a tension there, I would say. So, um, was there a hand over here? No? Okay, cool. So let's jump right in. Can I get a brave volunteer to read about Rabbi Yochanan and General Vespasian? When Rabbi Yochanan reached the Romans, he said, Peace upon you, king. Peace upon you, king. General Vespasian said, You shall die for two reasons. First, because I am not a king and you call me king. Second, if I am a king, why did you not come to me before now? Let's just take that much. Questions, comments. Vespasian wasn't a very nice guy. Hilarious guy. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. No matter what. It's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so far, I understand. It makes sense so far. <laughs> There's no right answer. The thing that doesn't make sense, and this is the thing that bothers uh, Vespasian and that bothers bothered the Roman scholars who were writing down the history of this time, was how this Hebrew knew of the impending death of the emperor and appointment of Vespasian as the because he was not considered by Rome at the time to be the choice, the, the expected choice. It was a lot of correct backroom, last-minute deals that elected this general who'd been sent to the useless end of the king of the empire mm -hmm. to put down a rebellion of a bunch of Jews. You know, he, that was, that was a, a shit assignment. That wasn't a good assignment. <laughs> he, was given. he was supposed to be there for 20 plus years and never come home. Right. So let's get into that history real quick. I'll do this in a whirlwind thing. I had to go and look up a bunch of it because it is convoluted. Um, 
Vespasian uh, became the emperor, but he was not yet the emperor. He was the commander of Roman imperial forces in and around um, Palestina, as they were calling it. Um, although I don't know that they'd renamed it that just yet, but it would be. So the land of Israel, still. Um, while he was laying siege to Jerusalem in the year 79, Emperor Nero committed suicide, which caused a short Roman civil war um, called the Year of the Four Emperors. Um, two other emperors came and died fairly quickly, and Vitellius was appointed emperor. However, Vespasian's military command, actually, like his underlings, proclaimed that no, he was the rightful emperor. So... He marshaled Roman forces that were all along the periphery, as you're talking about, in Syria, Primus, and Pannonia, and they marched on Roman bases in Egypt and Rome itself. Um, when Vespasian left, when he departed the, uh, the Israelite theater, he appointed his son Titus to be the uh, commander of the army in his stead. So Titus was actually the one who sacked Jerusalem um, in the year 70, one year later. Titus attacked it with about 70,000 people. There were 30,000 Jewish defenders, all of whom were killed. And it's believed that this war killed 1.1 million people. Um, A massive, massive devastation. Um, If you think about how much less densely populated the world was back then, we're talking about a really wholesale destruction of the society. Did you say there were just 30,000 Jews there or 30,000 Jewish soldiers? In Jerusalem, where the defenders of Jerusalem. Were where? In, it would have, the war was all over the land of Israel. Oh. So that was, that's the bigger picture. But the Jerusalem piece <laughs> itself, they killed everyone there. Um, so that's the history. We're seeing this rabbi essentially walk into this very interesting interplay going on in Rome. This is before that. This is right on the edge of it. Before. Six, Vespasian was general in 69. He became emperor. And Titus took over as general in 70 and sacked the city. Right on the edge, yeah. yeah There's a point that uh, Vespasian, when he heard this uh, rabbi mm-hmm. calling him king, he already knew he was going to be king, but he wondered why this other guy would know. Good question. Well, you, you implied that he sort of knew it because he, he was marshalling all his forces to make it happen. So, if I, if I understood the way you described sort of the history, excellent question. I didn't mean to imply it necessarily, and I, if anyone knows the history of that particular civil war better than I do, you know, please chime in. But um, my understanding was that a big piece of that violence that came came sort of as a result of this vacuum that was created by Nero being killed. He died, and then everybody was scrambling to see, oh, who's going to be the next one. Um, so I'm not sure that he, it's a good question whether or not he believed he was going to be the king or the emperor or whatever. I think it's a question worth holding uh, as we continue to read this. Other questions? All right, let's take the second paragraph. Rabbi Yochanan replied, as for your saying that you are not a king, in truth you are a king, since if you were not a king, Jerusalem would not be delivered into your hand, as it is written, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. Mighty one applies only to a king, as it is written, and their mighty one shall be of themselves, and Lebanon refers to the temple, as it says, this good mountain and Lebanon. As for your question, why, if you are a king, I did not come to you till now, the answer is that the Birioni did not let me. Okay, these are the same Birioni we saw in the last story, these sort of Italian fascist black shirt types who were... um, 
running a lot of the violence in the city and defending against that siege. Questions about this paragraph? So Go ahead. The, the line that I don't quite, that gives me trouble is, and their mighty one shall be of themselves. So who, <laughs> who, who in this is, is they and themselves? Because if the idea is that it, if it's just saying, and this king will be of the invading people, then that seems sort of a, I don't know, redundant and pointless statement. So we're seeing rabbinic logic at work here. <laughs> um, the way that they make points rhetorically is they hang them on biblical verses or verses from Torah. So if they can find some piece that makes the point that they want to make, they are totally content to rip it out of its original context and just tack it on for whatever it is they're wanting to say. So what we see here is Rabbi Yochanan has taken a whole bunch of random verses and sort of strung them together to create this idea that uh, Jerusalem would only fall to a king. So I want to say I would caution you about reading two um, too much into each individual verse. You're certainly invited to do so, and there's a lot that you could drosh from it, but um, sometimes they're just using it to make score or rhetorical points. Sometimes they're using it for the meaning. Um, but I wouldn't get too hung up on it, is I guess what I'm saying. Other questions? If, if this is actually a conversation, mm -hmm. here you have this rabbi mm -hmm. quoting Torah to Vespasian. Yeah. Who... Wouldn't know well, who, he wouldn't know Torah, and why would he care? Why would Vespasian care? Now, where, where is this happening? That's a good question too. Because it's not in Jerusalem, right? He seems to have. He, well, because he escaped Rabbi Jerusalem. Yohanan was taken out of Jerusalem. That's so right. He escaped out on the road somewhere. He's probably at the siege wall. He probably <laughs> reached the Roman lines and was brought to Vespasian. Why it was that the Romans would see fit to take this random rabbi to their supreme commander, Roman forces? Is a question too, but so you're is, assuming he didn't just go and look Vespasian up and knock on his door and say that could be too. I am a rabbi. This is <laughs> this gets into that whole piece about your what is your movie version? What does it look like in your mind's eye? So for Bert, he went and knocked on Vespasian's door, <laughs> or that's a possibility of it. Yeah, the, the Roman siege camp, the, the Roman siege lines and siege camps were set up in a very interesting fashion. Mm -hmm which is that you had, they would enclose the city that they were sieging entirely in a stone wall. Mm -hmm. And then on the outside of those, or on the, on the outside of those stone walls, they would have a second wall that would fortify an interior camp, which would be stationed periodically around the outside wall. And in the center of the camp was always the command structure. So he would have had to pass through multiple walls, which would have had checkpoints and guard posts and barricades and then make it through a heavily armed and fortified Roman camp to get to the center of the camp, where the commander would be. So, that's exactly what I was about to say. Mickey, you beat me to the punch. If you want to see this structure, you can actually see Vespasian's siege wall and command center um, at Masada. It's still there. Um, you can see the outline all the way around there, and you can walk over. You can see all the different siege camps, and the biggest one is Vespasian's. Um, still there. So, those of you who get a chance to go to Israel anytime soon, um, you can so see... So, are we assuming this happened at Masada? No, that because... that was Vespasian siege camp? Because he was laying different sieges as the campaign continued. Oh. So, after he destroyed... Early. This is probably an earlier one. After he destroyed Jerusalem, they then went and destroyed Masada, they destroyed Gamla. There are a bunch of these uh, sieges that they conducted. Oh. 
other questions, but yes, it's amazing to actually see this architecture they're describing in so person. So Yochanan could have been a prisoner. He could have been. In fact, the odds were are probably decent that he could have been captured immediately, and they brought him. They hauled him over. I don't know if, how would he get there? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he was in a coffin, right? He was in he a was, coffin the last time we saw him. He was in a coffin. coffin. They, his disciples were taking him out of Jerusalem, pretending he was dead. So he seems to have popped back out of his coffin in time to be taken by the Romans, or seems to have requested an audience with Vespasian. We don't totally know, but he has made his way over there to have this conversation. Vespasian is actually engaging him. Yes. I mean, he's not. He's actually having a conversation with him. They are actually engaging. It's, It's interesting to look at who is messing with who through this whole conversation. But, yes, they are talking. So... From a Roman perspective, Vespasian was considered to be a fairly wise and, and just leader, which was why the Roman army elected him over the existing senators and people who were in line for the throne of the insane Nero. Yes. Um, yeah, a Roman general of that stature would have been a huge guy. And then for his commanders to then say, no, you should be the emperor, um, this would have been somebody of real stature. Um, that's absolutely right. One of the things that struck me is that with the king answer, in terms of this, first, you know, I'm not a king and you call me king. Second, if I'm a king, why did you not come before me now? With the first question, Yohanan ben Zakkai gives this beautiful flowery drosh yeah. weaving together all of these Torah sources and all of that. And then for the second question, he said, well, the thugs wouldn't let me. <laughs> like... He doesn't really engage with it. I thought that was a really striking thing, that he takes the one question, but not really the other. Any thoughts about that? Well, I think he was just, the second one was just, he had a realistic answer to it. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> they wouldn't, I was a prisoner. Yeah. My, my own people were holding me prisoner. Another possibility I heard from our rabbinic intern, Daniel Sher, who was looking at this with me, he said, well, the first part is really about him, about Vespasian. He's doing this for Vespasian's benefit. He wants to butter him up a little bit and say, oh, you're so wonderful because of Jerusalem and the Mighty One and all of this and lining him up to sound like king and God and all of this. Um, Why didn't you get here until now? Well, it's beside the point. Let's focus on you, king, you know? (laughs) I thought that was an interesting take on it. Well, I said before he could be a prisoner. Clearly he wasn't a prisoner because otherwise Vespasian wouldn't ask him, why didn't you come here before? Oh, he could have been like Josephus. The Romans carried on the Greek tradition of uh, treating captured wise men and learned men with a higher degree of respect than they did most political prisoners and keeping them as as slaves and educators inside of Rome because all of Rome's uh, culture was plunder. Right. And they were not very discreet or they didn't discriminate about whose culture they plundered. They would take anyone's. Just sort of folded into what they were doing. It comes yeah. like Alexander started that in a big way too, yeah. um, even before. So, yeah. So I mean, it's reasonable to think that you know, if he were Abba Sikara, one of these you know militant leaders, they'd have you know flayed him alive or some such. Whereas you know, for the scholar, oh well, we'll talk to him. I think there's a reasonable suggestion to be made there. Other thoughts about this piece, this paragraph, where we continue on. All right, let's continue on. Who wants to pick up reading for us? Vespasian said to him, if there is a jar of honey and a snake is wrapped around it, wouldn't they break the jar in order to kill the snake? Reb Yohan ben Zakkai was silent and could give no answer. Reb Yosef, or as some say Reb Kiva, said about Reb Yohanan, I am the Lord who turns sages backwards and makes their knowledge foolish. 
Reb Yohanan should have said to Vespasian, we take a pair of tongs to seize the snake and kill it, so we leave the jar intact. So these other rabbis look at him and say, idiot, what are you talking about? Why do you have to break the jar? You can, you know, pull, a, pull the snake off with, you know, a tool or something. We get the metaphor here, though, right? We, Siege of the city. Exactly. So the snake to Vespasian, I believe he's talking about the Sicari, the Biryoni. He's talking about these Jewish militants that he can't get out of the city. The city itself being the jar of honey, this prize that he wants. Um, so he's saying, yeah, you have to break the thing in order to get rid of the snake. Whereas the other rabbi say, idiot, that's not true. Why didn't you have an answer for that? He's silent in the face of that reasoning. Why is that? They, they know the answer. Who are these two other rabbis? One of them we've spent some time with here. I mean, Akiva is one of the most famous of all rabbis and was, he was, he was, would have been young at this time period because he was more, or was he a much better Rabbi Akiva died in the year 135. Okay, so he wasn't, so he would have, this would have been simply commentary from... Didn't he become a rabbi when he was 40 or something That's right. So, if anybody remembers some of the stuff we looked at with Rabbi Akiva, he was this brilliant Torah scholar, this wonderful rabbi, and he was one of the instigators in and around the Bar Kokhva revolt. He was the one that renamed Shimon Bar Kosiba Bar Kokhva. Bar Kokhba means literally son of a star, and it's because Rabbi Akiva wanted to elevate this uh, rebel commander to not just being, you know, an insurrectionist, but actually being the Messiah. And so, and other rabbis rebuked him for it. There were some that said, uh, Akiva, you're going to be six feet under and the Messiah still won't have come. Or, what are you kidding about this stuff with uh, Bar Kokhba and this guy? So, Rabbi Akiva may have a very different take than Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Akiva was much more closely associated with real militarism. The Bar Kokhba revolt actually seems probably destroyed an entire Roman legion, and they had their own, basically, state for three years before the Romans came in with overwhelming force and massacred them all. Um, that slaughter in 135 was probably the biggest of all of them during between the wars in and around 70, the war at 118, the Great Revolt, and the Bar Kokhba Revolt. That probably led to the greatest devastation of all of that, and that was sort of the end of any kind of uh, Jewish militarism uh, in the in antiquity. Yeah. So one thing that I've always found interesting about Rabbi Akiva, and this is perhaps because he was a, a lay person for the first 40 years of his life, mm -hmm. but he has this very like sort of streetwise practicality about him. He seems less into the esoteric and more into the, you know, this is what we should be doing when he comes in. He, he does have a very military, militaristic view on everything, mm -hmm. but it seems like, you know, instead of discussing in all of these weird ways uh, ideas that Vespasian is the king, just give him a good answer to a question. He has this question that you may sound really difficult, but there's a clear answer. Yeah. Don't don't beat around the bush, just this is the answer. Right. Absolutely. I have two Rabbi, yes. Uh, two questions. Yes. This last sentence, Rabbi Yochanan should have said to Vespasian, mm -hmm. is that Akiva speaking still? That's probably... We're clear about the quotes, who's saying what here. So this is the problem, there aren't quotes in the Talmud. <laughs> so... Um, is the implication... I think the implication... went on to say this, or is this the, some commentator saying it? The implication is that either Rabbi Akiva or Rabbi Yosef, um, what, whoever is writing this down, whatever later 
rabbi is saying that that rabbi is saying they're saying that Akiva or Yosef by using this verse about I am the Lord who turns sages backwards and makes their knowledge foolish they're saying that Rabbi Akiva or Rabbi Yosef whoever it is is calling Yochanan ben Zakkai an idiot and saying with and they're tagging it with their Torah verse with their uh, biblical verse and then saying this is why it's wrong whether whether Akiva went on to say that or whether the Talmud is just saying that, the Stam, not clear. Can so, you? Yeah. So, the tongs? Well, I was just wondering, are they really saying that he's an idiot or are they just going, oh, 2020 hindsight, oh, I should have said that. Okay, that's totally a possibility, that there is a sadness to it. Um, Turn, that look, this great sage has been turned backwards, has been turned foolish. How tragic is that? Um, you could, I think you can absolutely legitimately read it that way, for sure. Um, the other note I wanted to make, who Rabbi Yosef is. He was a rabbi from the 300s um, and the head of the academy at Pumbadita, which is in what is today um, Fallujah in Iraq. Um, so he was a very, very smart guy. Um, he succeeded Rava, another very, very smart rabbi. He was also, in the middle of his life, went blind, and so he then went on to memorize the whole Mishnah um, <laughs> auditorily, listening to it um, from his students. Uh, the other thing that's funny about him, he had this great legendary sense of humor and was made, and was, uh, would regularly make these pronouncements. Like one of the ones I found was that um, you can curse at a dog all you'd like and it will still wag its tail. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think was funny But anyway, he had all of these um, He even said at his 60th birthday It was reported that Great, I can cause all the mischief I want now Because I won't die a young man So, <laughs> so that is Rabbi Yosef So it's not clear whether it's Rabbi Yosef The great scholar and head of the academy Who is doing this critiquing Or whether it was Rabbi Akiva A much earlier scholar Who was connected to the Bar Kokhva revolt Yeah, and I wonder because they say it was either this one or that one. Does Akiva's name lend a little more credence to an idea? It's perhaps? a bigger name. Yeah. <laughs> yep, it is. That's true. Um, Can you talk about tongs? What about just them? such a weird? I think it says somewhere in. I think it's in the Talmud. The ten things created before the universe. Okay. And one of them was tongs made with tongs. <laughs> was there something special? I love that. Bert, I'm not sure. Is there something special about tongs? Bert, you may have stumped me. The no? special, the imagery of tongs in the Talmud, that might be esoteric <laughs> enough that I don't have a good answer for you off the top of my head. It's not one of those things we keep around the house nowadays. Well, it was the use of fire to make the tree Yeah, I was going to say, I got three I got three pair myself, like okay. one that I use for the grill and one that I use for okay. indoor cooking. And yeah, so... There certainly is utility to it. I'll put it like that. Common, I mean, it's, it's a, it's so it was a common implement that they would have around. Yeah, if you needed to move a log in the fire, you had a tong. Yeah. If you needed to move coals for cooking or a hot rock to put on your pot, you would have just, it's just a bent piece of metal. See, I didn't live then. I don't yeah. have <laughs> Yeah. And I'm a semi-vegetarian. I don't have tongs. <laughs> Sorry. I don't cook me 60, 70 yeah. years. I think the Pompeii exhibit. Yes. Or paratongs. Really? There you go. So, the, disc the discourse of tongs. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Why did my mother tell me it meant the hymn? 
the Jewish hammer. You're talking about Maccabee. Judah Maccabee. Maccabee. is a sledgehammer. Maccabee is the hammer. He's the. That was the other big notable uprising, and we're actually probably going to come back to the Maccabees in this conversation too. Um, so I'm glad you bring that up. But it's my confusion. Yeah, no, but that's okay. That's good to hold in this space. Did you have a question? No. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's. Con- in any other pressing questions? Let's continue on. There's a great, important discussion to be had here. Another one. Another one. Thank God. Baruch Hashem. Meanwhile, a messenger arrived from Rome, saying to him. Rise, for the emperor has died, and the noblemen of Rome have decided to make you head of state. At that time, Vespasian was wearing only one boot, and when he tried to put on the other, he could not. He tried to take off the first, but it would not come off. He said, what is this? Rabbi Yochanan said to him, don't worry, for good news has reached you, as it said, says, good tidings will make the bone fat. But Vespasian said, what do I do? He replied, let someone whom you dislike come and pass before you. As it is written, a broken spirit dries the bones. He did so, and the boot went on. Vespasian said to him, since you are so wise, why didn't you come to me until now? He said, didn't I tell you? Vespasian retorted, I also told you. All right. (laughs) Who's on first? (laughs) So, questions here. <laughs> what does it mean? Okay, what does it mean? So... What's the boot symbol? Well, I think he was just all, all befuddled because he, he got this good news and he, did, he didn't know which way to go. He, he couldn't move. He, he couldn't stay. It, it, I think it's a metaphor. I mean, so he mm. had one boot on and couldn't figure out how to get the other boot off. Lovely. the other one on. Very nice. Why was he wearing only one boot? Good question. Just hang around. You know, ever... just, just got interrupted. You know, taking off one, taking off the boots right when this Jew walks through the door. Yeah. Grant well, that didn't even really happen. It was just a metaphor. Yeah, that's well, an interesting idea to ask. Was he? How committed was he to this moment? Was he fully committed to this destruction of Jerusalem? Because he's not the one that pulls it off. Mm-hmm. It was his son who does it. So he's, he's started this project, this invasion of Israel, and he's succeeding, but he's not the one that's going to carry it through, in fact. So that's a really so interesting... He says he's not ready for it, because he only has one boot on. A lovely suggestion, oh. too. Um, he's not prepared yet. That could be, too. Yeah. So the other thing, though, is this idea of the uh, messenger from Rome saying that the nobleman of Rome decided to make you have to say, the nobleman of Rome backed the other guy, and it was the armies that backed Vespasian. We have a historical anomaly. Vespasian took his army, his legion, and about three or four others and marched on Rome. That's right. And fought a very, very short battle and conquered it. Yeah. So it wasn't the nobleman of Rome who who elected Vespasian. It was the hierarchy of the military. So what do you make of that? The Talmud changed the Roman politics. Okay. I I think that by doing that, they're trying to lend more, like... Authority and credence to Vespasian, mm-hmm. which seems strange to me because yes, Vespasian did not sack Jerusalem, but it was still his army and his son who did. Mm-hmm. But they're trying to somehow absolve Vespasian of uh, the authority of, and the, of, of carrying out the destruction of Jerusalem. I think that's a great reading. The other suggestion that comes to mind is that the rabbis know how this works out with who becomes the emperor. 
And they would rather that the legitimacy of the emperor come from the nobles, the elites of the society, rather than the thugs, the army, the biryoni, the fighters. Because um, they're in their own struggle right now with their own fighters right now. So it makes sense to me that if their agenda is inflating the rabbinic project, that they would come up with a reading that fed their, that met their needs rather than historical <clears throat> fact. Um, they've still got their, their foot in the door, so to speak. Yeah. On. Yep, and they've got an agenda, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, yeah. So this part about the, the spirit, the spirit, the broken spirit dries the bones. Yeah. Is he referring, uh, Johanan is referring to uh, being also philosophical and let someone who you dislike, is he referring to himself? Let Good me question. for you. That's a great question. And um, you will see that you know this will make you more humble or more understanding or more, more whatever. That he is breaking the spirit of right, and then of General Vespasian, and it was yeah, and then the mood went on after that. That's cool. So I have to write that down. That's good. Yes, we, we we have asked, I mean, it's an interesting interpretation because we don't have a reference to who it is that passed before Vespasian. Mm-hmm. Just that. Vespasian tries out this looking on someone with great displeasure, and lo and behold, his foot shrinks. And look who he's looking at. He says, let someone. Well, who else was there? Well, we don't know. That's the problem. They're they're in a Roman military camp. These are very... There's, you know, there could have been political enemies of Vespasian. There could have been... I mean, there's so many things that it could have been. There's so few references because of vague uh, pronouns. And that idea that Vespasian, that or that Yohanan has the ability to lower Vespasian spirits as this captive from this city that's about to be crushed, um, that's an interesting inversion of power in that but way. But he's been doing it already. Yes, that's right. Um, that's absolutely right, the way that power is working in this conversation. Also, the, the Jewish revolts were some of the only in Roman history that were even close to being effective. Right. Yeah, they all ultimately failed, but they did more damage than they even any, they, Yeah, even the Iberian revolts did not do as much damage so, as the Roman legion station there. My understanding is that uh, the Bar Kokhva revolt and one other revolt in Germania were the only ones to annihilate entire Roman legions yeah. in the history of the Roman Empire. German so, were Yeah, so scary. these are very... I mean, these were fierce, fierce people we were talking about here um, in, what, in their ability. Um, what do you make of the end, that last couple of sentences? It sounds like a playground fight. Yeah. You know, didn't I tell you? Child. I told you. Mm-hmm. So really Why do you think he asked him again? Why didn't you come to me until now? He repeats the question from before. Well, I, I think that he doesn't, Vespasian doesn't buy the initial answer of just, oh, I was helpless because of these, these mm-hmm. thugs, because of the sort of, uh, immense wisdom that he's seeing in Yohanan, this intellect and this wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sort of expects more out of Yohanan. Like, he, he's thinking that maybe Yohanan is sort of reaching a level of, of maybe intellectual or strategic equal, but that he has this one glaring flaw. And that he's sort of giving Yohanan an opportunity to repair that flaw. Okay, and good. Yohanan fails to do so tremendously. Let me it's another really weird thing about I'm just reading this again. Yeah. So Johanna, uh, 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 Vespasian is there. 
Somebody comes and says, you're going to be emperor. And he starts fiddling around with his feet <laughs> and worrying about why Rabbi Yochanan came to see him or not. It does, so let it, me... It, it, it doesn't all go together to me. Well, I mean, guy says rise to him well, you, you, with one shoe on. But why would somebody come in and tell the guy who's going to be the emperor to get up? I mean, you know. I look for the, the warning that oh, the Romans to were not, pay respect. They, they had to stand whenever the emperor or the news or the bearing of the emperor was passing by. Sitting was treason. So when he's getting official news of Nero, he has to be standing to receive the news, even if that news is that now he's the new emperor. <laughs> But then he starts messing with his boots. Maybe that's because he tried to stand up and he realized he didn't have two boots on. So let me... That could be too. Let me ask a question that Daniel Sher and I went back and forth in circles about, which is, did Rabbi Yochanan cause Vespasian to be emperor? Or did he know the future that that was going to happen? What do you all think? We went round and round with that question. Because that question affects how you look at this sentence here. You mean because he called him king at the beginning? Yeah. yeah. Does Vespasian... Well, the word for king and emperor, those are two different words. Uh, in the Hebrew, I'm not sure they are. Oh, okay, that was my... I, I would have to check, but... It feels like prophecy to you. Yeah. That was and what... The, and, the, he, and, and, and the, the thing that rightly or wrongly that kind of gets brought to my mind, because I don't know the history of Romans, but, but it seems like like that, that Vespasian, of all of them, he was not setting out to be emperor. It was his men wanted him to be emperor. Mm-hmm. So it, he's like reluctant. So the suggestion Daniel Scher made was that uh, rather that the, they're changing history again. They're suggesting that um, Rabbi Yochanan put that seed of a thought in Vespasian's head. So therefore, Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan actually caused it. I had thought it was, I, I was, the, my first reading was more along your lines that it was more prophetic, that it was looking into the future in some way, and, or understanding What's the course of events that are happening right now to see that as the logical outcome. But it's a good question as to whether or not Rabbi Yochanan was foretelling it or causing it. I mean, it, it seems like a prophecy because, like, all of a sudden, uh, Yochanan, who's been in Jerusalem under watch of the Biryani for a while, mm-hmm. decides that now this is the time he absolutely has to get out of the city, and he absolutely has to go and speak with Vespasian now, so that he can be there for this discussion, which seems something that is the prophetic nature of but, the mm-hmm. prophetic side. Interesting. He, he was being smuggled out in the coffin, so to say. Yeah. Was he really going to Vespasian, or was he just caught? Good I mean, question, too. You know, how, how, if you're escaping like that, you're not going to the leader. But you get outside the walls of Rome, or the walls of Jerusalem, you get away from the Brioni, you're still inside of the Roman siege wall. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. Right. There's so no escape from Rome. Yeah. <laughs> um, you don't have anywhere to go once you get out. When Vespasian says, if you're so wise, why didn't you come to me until now? If you know so much, um, Daniel Sher's suggestion was, Wow. Where have you been? If I could have been emperor, you know, last year, why didn't you come out then? Yeah, exactly. Um, which was an interesting thing. Or is he repeating, challenging him, why didn't you come till now? You didn't give me a satisfactory answer. It's not clear. Um, you can read it both ways. But uh, 
and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, and it makes sense, well, I, didn't I tell you? I, I already told you where I was. The biryoni held me up. You know, I couldn't make it. Get over it, you know? Um, what do you think of this retort, of Vespasian retorting, I also told you? I sort of think that that's that line where he says, you know, if I'm king, you can come before me. Since you took so long to come to me, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Like referencing that earlier line in their discussion. It could be that line. It could also, I wonder, be if he's referencing that line about the honey and the snake. Saying, oh yeah, you don't know where, you don't know, uh, you don't have a good answer for, you know, where it was, why it took so long. Well, I don't have a good answer for you know, how to remove the snake without destroying the jar. Um, I wonder if it's that kind of that makes more sense. reciprocal mm-hmm. push. All right, to the next page. As Basian said, I'm going to Rome now and will send someone to take my place. But you can make a request and I will grant it. Rabbi Yohanan said to him, give me Yavne and its sages, as well as the family line of Rabbi Daniel Gamaliel. Rabbi Yosef, or some say Rabbi Akiva, said about him, I am the Lord who turns sages backwards and makes their knowledge foolish. He should have said to Vespasian, spare the Jews this time. But Rabbi Yohan thought he wouldn't even do that much, and there wouldn't even be the slightest salvation. Questions? So is he saying... He's saying, save the sages, Rabbi Yochanan. Yep. And uh, Let him have Yavna for the Sanhedrin. Let have, yeah, let, let us have our elite people. And Akiva, or Yosef, or some say Akiva, is saying he should have said, save all the Jews. Is that? Yep. Yeah. And that Rabbi Yochanan didn't, because he thought if he asked for to save all the Jews, Vespasian wouldn't have given him anything. Is the perfect the enemy of the good? Have you heard that expression before? Yeah. Well, don't ask for too much. Push your, don't push your luck. Yeah. <laughs> These are the people with the knowledge, and that, they're the ones who are going to bring out the Torah and all the comments that have been written to discuss. Mm-hmm. And That's it's right. more important to get them out to continue with the team. Yeah, go ahead, Abraham. Well, the, the two, two comments, but one was I noticed that Yohanan seems to have no interest in saving any of the priesthood. That um, <laughs> he seems to, yep. I think, strongly... It, it seems from a lot of these things that Yohanan may well blame the priesthood for uh, the state that Jerusalem is in, uh, being besieged and overrun by fascists. Um, but also with this whole thing with Yosef, or some say Akiva, I, I get this feeling, this, you know, this picture in my head, where sometime in the 300s during, you know, Joseph's time, maybe he's talking about something that Akiva said, and then 200 or 300 years later when this is being finished by, you know, the three people who redacted it, they're going like, oh, well, you know, Yosef said this, but maybe Akiva said it. Actually. Sounds more like it. It sounds more like something Akiva would have said, because it's a little harsh for Yosef. It's possible, but they oftentimes actually mention it when they have that. They will preserve. Shmuel said... Um, Rav said in the name of Shmuel this thing. They'll actually preserve those lines of this person said this thing, which was said by this other person. Okay. So they do that frequently enough that I'm guessing there was an actual dispute 
um, where four or five hundred years in the year four, or rather in the year four or five hundred, they could have been sitting around talking about was it the guy from three hundred or the guy from one thirty-five, you know? Um, and one academy might have had one answer to it, another academy might have had another answer to it. Um, so is this the compromise? That could be too. <laughs> Let me. Everybody gets something. Now back to that question. Yeah, go ahead. No, it just what, what keeps spinning around in my head is until last week and this week. I mean, I thought I had it pretty clear that there was stories and there was law, <laughs> but now there's stories, laws, and history because this is history. It may be history presented in a personal way, but it's still historic. I'm reluctant to call it history because I don't think that what they're doing fits within our Western idea of history. I would say that their memory is what I would, is the word I would use, what they're doing. What did you call memory. it? Memory. Yeah. Still they're remembering. No, but you don't know that they actually talked that You don't know that they talked, but you do know that it's Vespasian not. became the emperor. They're making meaning of what it is they remember happening, is what I want to suggest, okay. rather than chronicling history. And looking at the results and trying to determine That's right. how it got there. That's right. Let's return to that question. As to why did I not come to you till now, the answer is the Birioni did not let me. What do you all think of that? Cop out. <laughs> Maybe it's a cop out. Um, I also, and then the fact that he is silent about this question of the snake around the jar, that made me wonder, did he want the Romans to destroy Jerusalem in the Birioni? I mean, it seems like he wants the fall, the downfall of the priesthood, and potentially is is not is either aware and willing to take the risk, or not fully cognizant of the fact that the downfall of the priesthood is also going to be the sack of the temple, the pulling down of the temple, the burying of the temple under you know dirt and rubble, and mm -hmm. erection of a of a, a you know market street over the side of the temple. I'm wondering if you know he. He wants the the current political situation of Jerusalem to be torn down. He may not understand the full ramifications of how brutal the Romans were going to be. So that, if they had that's a possibility. Conquered these cities and then left the cities more or less intact. You put right. that idea along with the end of this, where he basically says, "Save the rabbis, yeah, and and let Jerusalem yeah. go." Yeah. yeah. He, asked to save the city or the people. Now, he also would have had an example of what happened. Suppose the siege had been lifted. What would have happened to him and the rabbis? The Biryoni were wanting to kill him for leaving the city. We have another example of what happens when the fundamentalists, the armed fighters, won. The Maccabees. The Maccabees. Back to Makhevet, back to the hammer. The Maccabees, after they defeated the forces of Antiochus, they went and slaughtered all these Jews who they felt like uh, had assimilated or were not pure enough. You can look at the Hanukkah story as a Jewish civil war of its sort. Um, I'll with bet Rabbi... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, a Jewish civil war with a bad outcome. With a terrible outcome. The first person that Judah Maccabee killed was a Jew. That was the beginning of the Maccabean revolt in the book of Maccabees was a Jew was bringing some sacrifice to Jupiter or some such thing, and Judah Maccabee slaughtered him in the street, one of his own people. Um, they were notable for performing forced circumcisions when they came across Jews that they were forcing into this. I mean, these were truly Heredia. brutal guys. Um, so, and you can bet that Rabbi Yochanan... But it's very fundamentalist, knew, you say. Yes, extremely. 
And you can bet that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai knew the Hanukkah story. He probably knew the story of the Maccabees and the Hasmonean dynasty and its corruption that came afterward. When the fundamentalists won the war and took over and had their own government, it became really corrupt within a couple of generations. Um, you can bet that he knew those stories. So the question, what of his silence in the face of, you know, if there's a snake wrapped around the honey jar and he's silent, how intentional is that? The other rabbis are saying, oh, it's his, his wisdom is failing him. The Holy One made this sage turn foolish. That's a question to me, actually. It certainly fits uh, his description of what was happening. That was his choice. So It also would make sense for Akiva, then, to have said that, because Akiva was that fundamentalist, that militant, that violent extremist. Akiva lifted up the rebel to be the Messiah. Akiva was attached to that project. So now, the end of the story. Let me ask a question about all of this, where they keep saying that uh, his, his knowledge, his sage, the sage has been turned backward and his knowledge has turned foolish from these guys who came centuries later. Does that sound fair? Yeah. Because it's either that or they have to say to themselves he was a traitor to Interesting. the Jewish people in their view. It strikes me as a certain kind of Monday morning you know, quarterbacking, saying, well, I would have done yeah. it differently. Yeah. Um, what I was saying during when we were discussing with groups is that it's like when you're in the shower the next day and you realize that you have the perfect comeback for that guy who insulted you <laughs> a week ago. Yeah. If you'd only been able to say that on the spot, you would have utterly destroyed this person and shown him up to be a fool. But you think of it in the shower the next day. It makes me think about you know people saying, oh, well, if I had lived in the American South during the Civil War, I never would have had slaves and I would have fought for freedom and all of this stuff when we know that a lot of people didn't. It makes me think about the question um, of the Allies not bombing the Nazi rail lines during World War II and people saying after the fact they should have done more to impede the Jews being shipped off to these death camps. On one hand, maybe they did have the capacity to do that. On the other hand, they were also fully committed to destroying fascism, um, which seemed to be a pretty total war at that time. So, Turning the St. Louis around and sending That's right. That's right. It seems to me that the rabbis are asking the same kind of question that we ask when we go to Yad Vashem and ask, should they have bombed the rail lines? Thoughts? Responses? We don't know what was going on in, in the scene at the time. In and this could, text? Yeah. yeah. Many of them. But, you know, he could well have been sort of intimidated and think, well, I give him too many smart answers, he's not going to... Take, take the, the rabbis out. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's that 2020 hindsight again. Yeah, about, I mean, should you save this small group that you can because you think you're able to, or should you try and save a bigger group that you don't think you'd be able to? It's a real moral quandary. Um, and I don't think it's easily answered. I do think that, although here's another thing. The rabbis... It's not clear historically that these rabbis ever actually were meeting with Vespasian or Titus or any of these people that conquered this place. Um, but they did survive somehow. So it's kind of an interesting question to wonder how it was that they did manage to work their way around the Romans to set up their academies and such at Yavna and then manage to survive the Great Revolt in 118 and then survive the Bar Kokhva Revolt. Clearly they were having to play a very careful political game. Um, and the morals, the ethics of it are challenging. Um, how much do you try and save 
if you're not in a position. I mean, I think about the Talmudic injunction that whoever has saved a life, it is as if they have saved the whole world. You could slice that either way to say that the people he saved, those represent a whole world in saving the people that he was able to. You could then turn it on its head and say, each one of those people that he didn't save, that was the whole world right there. There's no easy answer to this. But clearly they're dealing with moral complexity. And they're coming out on different sides of it, too. It seems that they're very able to see the different sides of the discussion, um, even when they struggle to answer the question. Thoughts, comments, responses? One, it seems like one struggle that, that the writers of, of, this, of the memory of this history had to, had to answer was, we, we know Jerusalem, everyone in it was annihilated. We know everyone at um, Masada was annihilated. We also know that um, Yavne survived. Know that, that we survived. How could it be that we survived? And this could be the answer to that. Are you question. speaking to a certain kind of survivor's guilt? Is that or, where you're going or, with or this? Just the need to explain. How yeah, it is. to explain what had happened. What yeah, had happened. before. Yeah. This is where I, I would return to saying I don't think they're doing history, but I think they are creating meaning around their memory, their collective memory of what happened. You could say that about many things in the Torah. Many of the stories in the Torah, same thing. They are people looking back and trying to give meaning and explanation. Like, how did we get here? Why, well, why is the universe here? Well, the answer is seven days and God created whatever. We still do that on a very personal level oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. And I have heard, I think about uh, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook, who tries to make meaning of the Holocaust in the 1970s by saying that it, was, it needed to happen in order to create a certain kind of messianic reality within the Jewish people and to excise the ones who weren't going to go and settle the land and take the land. I mean, this was very much, um, this is the ideology of messianism in service of the settlement movement in the wake of 1967. We'll be talking about that May 4th. I think that'll be with me as well. But um, but it's a certain kind... You can get into dark places with that kind of rationalization, I think. And I think Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook certainly did with his kind of messianism. But, you know, these are guys who are trying to, yeah, make sense of this destruction that they suffered and what was their role in it and what could they have done differently. And clearly they do judge Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai for not doing more to save them. Um, but it's not clear he could have. Yeah. And also, usually you ask for the most and then you bargain down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? That's one approach, sure. Um, assuming that Vespasian didn't have him executed for an <laughs> outlandish... Because yeah. right. um, the whole thing starts out with Vespasian saying, I'm going to kill you for two reasons. Wait, you know what? <laughs> Yeah. I think it says that, but it doesn't really say that. Okay. It says, you shall die. It doesn't say, I'm going to kill you. It says, you shall die. Okay. You could separate that out. I think the, to me at least, I think the implication of it is, is that it? I would have you killed. Like, okay. you will die for, A, you that. that you didn't, that you uh, are calling me king and I'm not, and that's inappropriate, and apparently um, makes him eligible for death. And... 
if I am a king, why did you wait so long to come to me? You needed to have come to the king before now, and that makes you uh, liable for the death penalty. So I'm going to kill you. Yeah, that's uh, that's the way I read it. I mean, I, I'm enter- I'm happy to entertain other readings too. I think that's part of it. But um, why would Vespasian all of a sudden say you can make a request and I'll grant it? Well, this yeah, gets back to that question. Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm, I was thinking that too. Like after he's saying he's basically a heretic and doing all this, that, and the other, and he's going to die, then he goes, "Okay." I'll Unless it's his you. last wish. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, Rabbi Yohanan helped Vespasian out of a tough spot. This guy couldn't get his boot off. <laughs> you know, and he couldn't. He couldn't. We're using it, the boots as, an exa- as a metaphor for his willingness to, you know, wage war on his own country to claim the throne. So he's just and this same is a reward. reward. This is a reward for him for the advice and for the knowledge and the wisdom that was given. Mm-hmm. And, and for the challenge, and which he seemed to enjoy. And, and why yeah. didn't he go for the big one? I come back to Jim uh, as well. You know, why didn't he ask for? Well, go ahead, Robert. Well, to the point I think uh, you and others have made a couple of times. This is, to me at least, this is this is made up, mm-hmm. or to a large degree made up, hanging on some known, available, convenient facts mm-hmm. because otherwise it's not credible. Mm-hmm. But there's enough credibility in the facts that it's hanging on, but it's made up. I mean, they know what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yavne and, and the elite survived, and <laughs> most people were killed, and mm-hmm. Vespasian was around, and this, that, and the other, and, and uh, it's a marvelous story they wove around how this could have happened. I think that they also do a beautiful job of holding their leaders and the people that they revere with a certain kind of ambivalence, that they're able to look at their own rabbis. At Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai saved the entire enterprise, and they're still able to hold some ambivalence around who he was and what he was able to do. They're not, you know, they're not trying to deify their own people. There's not. It's different than like the Roman impulse to you know build a statue to the great conqueror. They're holding some real ambivalence well, around look at their the, heroes. But look at the Exodus story, yeah. which is marvelous. And then the people are belly aching nonstop. And Moses is imperfect. He's Correct. the greatest prophet that was we, ever lived. Pretty constant. Yep. Throughout our it's slow history, that we there's no perfection around. I think it's a really important part that differentiates us from other faith traditions that our greatest leaders are not perfect. Um, our, our story starts with, the Jewish story starts with failures. Yeah. It starts with failure after failure. I mean, uh, at the garden. Yeah. You know, Adam and Eve fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cain failed with, um, you know, with Noah. Mm-hmm. You know, he failed in to keep his his people alive. He managed to save his small family and two of every animal. He failed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but God uh, says God failed. God, I yeah, made God these people. Failed. I made these I, people. I this these didn't work. Let's flood it out and try again. Flood it out. I got to try again. And at every step, the the Jews fail. They they sell their brothers into slavery. They sacrifice their firstborn children. They steal their birthright didn't from the... Didn't have to. No, yeah, I was going to say, well, let's, we're not going quite that far. But that is, well, that's the Christian reading yeah, there. Yeah. So. Abraham attempts to sacrifice, Isaac fails. Mm-hmm. Isaac gets, <laughs> tricked, to him. gets tricked out of giving the birthright to the correct child because mm-hmm. it's stolen. 
And then, you know, there's kids sold into slavery who then becomes this great leader. There's always, all of the, the great Jews seem to have these moments of utter and complete failure. And we've done okay. Footing we've done okay. Jewish tradition. Yeah. And it was this way, but yeah. on the other hand. Yeah. <laughs> Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai didn't manage to save all the Jews, but he did save the line of Rabban Gamliel, the leadership of them. He saved the academy at Yavne. He saved this enterprise that we're talking about 2,000 years later as resonating and reverberating in terms of our moral choices and moral complexities of our time. Um, yeah. Especially with this having just no Passover, Not bad. Not bad at all. Maybe not good enough for Rabbi Akiva, but not bad. Not bad. And I think there is some real Torah in that, that, um, that you know, maybe the perfect is the enemy of the good. Maybe we can take that brokenness and some of those failures and continue to strive and know that, you know, we're not going to make perfection. Um, we just keep working. Yeah. Maybe we can have a little more Rahmanus than, uh, than Rabbi Akiva had. But... <laughs> Then again, that impulse to, you know, we ought to do better is also a really important impulse. Rabbi Tarfon says in Perkei Avot, it's not upon you to complete the work, but you also can't walk away from it either. You can't desist from it. Um, so we have this tension of, yes, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is a great hero. Yes, he had a tremendous failure. And yes, we would aspire in the coming centuries to do better. Um, I think there is great lesson for our time in how we look at we look at our Jewish life post Holocaust, post the Shoah, and the failures that we and destruction that we experience as a people. Um, the destruction they're dealing with here is uh, more profound than even we experienced in the 1940s. Um, so there's a lot for us to carry in terms of how it is that we build a Jewish future. How do we build a Jewish state? How do we build an Israel, a place that we love and we may have higher expectations for it than it's currently meeting? That's a tension that we currently hold around Israel, around a lot of the discourse um, with various politicians and peace deals and the settlements. There's a lot of stuff there um, where we have the reality of something and it's beautiful and it's an incredible accomplishment that we've built and we keep working to do better. Um, I think there's a lot in how this uh, what this tells us and what it shows us, what it demonstrates to us about what it means to be in a Jewish present, to make meaning and hold um, a Jewish past and Jewish memory, and to build a Jewish future going forward. So with that, I will say good evening. It's a pleasure learning Talmud with all of you. I look forward to continuing next time. We'll look at something a little lighter than the destruction of the temple going forward.